Part One of Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Anything You Can Do by Randall Garrett. Part One. Like some great silver pink fish, the ship sang on through the eternal night there was no impression of swimming the fish shape had neither fins nor a tail it was as though it were hovering in wait for a member of some smaller species to swoop suddenly down from nowhere so that it in turn could pounce and kill but still it moved only a being who was thoroughly familiar with the type could have told that this fish was dying in shape the ship was rather like a narrow flounder long tapered and oval in cross-section but it showed none of the exterior markings one might expect of either a living thing or of a spaceship with one exception the smooth silver-pink exterior was featureless that one exception was a long, purplish-black, roughened discoloration that ran along one side for almost half of the ship's seventeen meters in length. It was the only external sign that the ship was dying. Inside the ship, the Nipe neither knew nor cared about the discoloration. Had he thought about it, he would have deduced the presence of the burn, but it was the least of his worries. The internal damage that had been done to the ship was by far the more serious. It could, quite possibly, kill him. The Nipe, of course, had no intention of dying. Not out here. Not so far, so very far from his own people. Not out here, where his death would be so very improper. He looked at the ball of the yellow-white sun ahead and wondered that such a relatively stable, inactive star could have produced such a tremendously energetic plasmoid that it could still do the damage it had done so far out. It had been a freak, of course. Such suns as this did not normally produce such energetic swirls of magnetic force. But the thing had been there nonetheless and the ship had hit it at high velocity. Fortunately, the ship had only touched the edge of the swirling cloud, otherwise the entire ship would have vanished in a puff of incandescence. But it had done enough. The power plants that drove the ship at ultralight velocities through the depths of interstellar space had been so badly damaged that they could only be used in short bursts, and each burst brought them nearer to the fusion point. Most of the instruments were powerless. The Nipe was not even sure he could land the vessel. Any attempt to use the communicator to call home would have blown the ship to atoms. The Nipe did not want to die, but if die he must. He did not want to die foolishly. It had taken a long time to drift in from the outer reaches of this sun's planetary system, but... Using the power plants any more than absolutely necessary would have been foolhardy. The Nipe missed the companionship his brother had given him for so long. 
His help would be invaluable now. But there had been no choice. There had not been enough supplies for two to survive the long fall inward toward the distant sun. The knipe, having discovered the fact first, had, out of his mercy and compassion, killed his brother while the other was not looking. Then, having eaten his brother with all due ceremony, he had settled down to the long, lonely wait. Beings of another race might have cursed the accident that had disabled the ship, or regretted the necessity that one of them should die, but the knipe did neither, for to him the first notion would have been foolish, and the second incomprehensible. But now, as the ship fell ever closer toward the yellow-white sun, he began to worry about his own fate. For a while it had seemed almost certain that he would survive long enough to build a communicator, for the instruments had already told him and his brother that the system ahead was inhabited by creatures of reasoning power, if not true intelligence, and it would almost certainly be possible to get the equipment he needed for them. Now, though, it looked as if the ship would not survive a landing. He had had to steer it away from a great gas giant which had seriously endangered the power plants. He did not want to die in space, wasted, forever undevoured. At least he must die on a planet where there might be creatures with the compassion and wisdom to give his body the proper ingestion. The thought of feeding inferior creatures was repugnant, but it was better than rotting to feed monocells or ectogenes, and far superior to wasting away in space. Even thoughts such as these did not occupy his mind often or for very long. Far, far better than any of them was the desire and planning for survival. The outer limits of the gas giants had been passed at least, and the knipe fell on through the asteroid belt without approaching any of the larger pieces of rock and metal. That he and his brother had originally elected to come into this system along its orbital plane had been a mixed blessing. To have come in at a different angle would have avoided all the debris, from planetary size on down, that is, thickest in a star's equatorial plane, but it would also have meant a much greater chance of missing a suitable planet, unless too much reliance was placed on the already weakened power generators. As it was, the knipe had been able to use the gravitational field of the gas giant to swing his ship toward the precise spot where the third planet would be when the ship arrived in the third orbit. Moreover, the third planet would be retreating from the knipe's line of flight, which would make the velocity difference that much less. For a while, the knipe had toyed with the idea of using the mining bases that the local life form had set up in the asteroid belt as bases for his own operations, but he had decided against it. Movement would be much freer and much more productive on a planet than it would be in the belt. He would have preferred using the fourth planet for his base. Although much smaller, it had the same reddish and look, reddish, arid look, as his own home planet, while the third world was three-quarters drowned in water. But there were two factors that weighed so heavily against that choice that they rendered it impossible. 
In the first place, by far the greater proportion of the local inhabitants' commerce was between the asteroids and the third planet. Second, and much more important, the fourth world was at such a point in her orbit that the energy required to land would destroy the ship beyond any doubt. It would have to be the third world. As the ship fell inward, the knight watched his pitifully inadequate instruments, doing his best to keep tabs on every one of the feebly powered ships that the local life-form used to move through space. He did not want to be spotted now, and even though the odds were against these beings having any instrument highly developed enough to spot his craft, there was always the possibility that he might be observed optically. So he squatted there in the ship, a centipede-like thing about five feet in length and a little less than eighteen inches in diameter, with eight articulated limbs spaced in pairs along his body, any one of which could be used as hand or foot. His head, which was long and snouted, displayed two pairs of violet eyes which kept a constant watch on the indicators and screens of the few instruments that were still functioning aboard the ship. And he waited as the ship fell towards its rendezvous with the third planet. Wang Kulichenko pulled the collar of his uniform coat up closer around his ears and pulled the helmet and face mask down a bit. It was only early October. But here in the tundra country the wind had a tendency to be chill and biting in the morning even at this time of year within a week or so he'd have to start using the power pack on his horse to electrically warm his protective clothing and the horse's wrappings but there was no necessity of that yet he smiled a little as he always did when he thought of his grandfather's remarks about such new-fangled nonsense your ancestors, son of my son, he would say, conquered the tundra and lived upon it for thousands of years without the need of such womanish things. Are there no men any more? Are there none who can face nature alone and unafraid without the aid of artifices that bring softness? But Wang Kulichenko noticed, though out of politeness he never pointed it out, that the old man never failed to take advantage of the electric warmth of the house when the short days came and the snows blew across the country like fine white sand. And he never complained about the lights or the television or the hot water, except to grumble occasionally that they were a little old and out of date, and that the mail-order catalogue showed that better models were available in Vladivostok. And Wang would remind the old man, very gently, that a paper forest ranger made only so much money, and that there would have to be more savings before such things could be bought. He did not, ever, remind the old man that he, Wang, was stretching a point to keep his grandfather on the payroll as an assistant. Wang Kulachinko patted his horse's rump and urged her softly to step up her pace just a bit. He had a certain amount of territory to cover, and although he wanted to be careful in his checking, he also wanted to get home early. Around him, the neatly planted forest of paper trees spread knotty alien branches, trying to catch the rays of the winter waning sun. Whenever Wang thought of his grandfather's remarks about his ancestors, he always wondered, as a corollary, 
what those same ancestors would have thought about a forest growing up here where no forest like this one had ever grown before they were called paper trees because the bulk of their pulp was used to make paper they were of no use whatever as lumber but they weren't trees really and the organic chemicals that were leached from them during the pulping process were of far more value than the paper pulp they were mutations of a smaller plant that had been found in the temperate regions of mars and purposely changed genetically to grow on the siberian tundra where the conditions were similar to but superior to their natural habitat they looked as though someone had managed to crossbreed the joshua tree with the cypress and then persuaded the result to grow grass instead of leaves in the distance wang heard the whining of the wind and he automatically pulled his coat a little tighter even though he noticed no increase in the wind velocity around him then as the whine became louder he realized that it was not the wind he turned his head toward the noise and looked up for a long minute he watched the sky as the sound gained volume but he could see nothing at first then he caught a glimpse of motion a dot that was hard to distinguish against the cloud mottled gray sky what was it an air transport in trouble there were two transpolar routes that passed within a few hundred miles of here but no air transport he had ever seen had made a noise like that normally they were so high as to be both invisible and inaudible must be trouble of some sort he reached down to the saddlebag without taking his eyes off the moving speck and took out the radio phone he held it to his ear and thumbed the call button insistently grandfather he thought with growing irritation as the seconds passed wake up come on old dozer rouse yourself from your dreams at the same time he checked his wrist compass and estimated the direction of flight of the dot and its direction from him he'd at least be able to give the airline authorities some information if the ship fell he wished there were some way to triangulate its height and so on but he had no need for that kind of thing so he hadn't the equipment yes yes came a testy dry voice through the earphone quickly wang gave his grandfather all the information he had on the flying thing by now the whine had become a shrill roar and the thing in the air had become a silver pink fish shape i think it's coming down very close to here wang concluded you call the authorities and let them know that one of the aircraft is in trouble i'll see if i can be of any help here i'll call you back later as you say the old man said hurriedly he cut off wang was beginning to realize that the thing was a spaceship not an airship by this time he could see the thing more clearly he had never actually seen a spacecraft but he'd seen enough of them on television to know what they looked like this one didn't look like a standard type at all and it didn't behave like one but it looked even less like an airship and he knew enough to know that he didn't necessarily know every type of spaceship ever built in shape it resembled the old rocket propelled jobs that had been first used for space exploration a century before rather than looking like the fat ovoids that he was used to but there were no signs of rocket exhausts and yet the ship was very obviously slowing 
so it must have an inertia drive. It was coming in much lower now, on a line north of him, headed almost due east. He urged the mare forward, in order to try to keep up with the craft, although it was obviously going several hundred miles per hour, hardly a horse's pace. Still, it was slowing rapidly, very rapidly. Maybe he kept the mare moving. The strange ship skimmed along the treetops in the distance and disappeared from sight. Then there was a thunderous crash, a tearing of wood and foliage, and a grinding, plowing sound. For a few seconds afterward, there was silence. Then there came a soft rumble, as of water beginning to boil in some huge but distant samovar. It seemed to go on and on and on, and there was a bluish, fluctuating glow on the horizon. Radioactivity? Wang wondered. Surely not an atomic-powered ship without safety cutoffs in this day and age. He pulled out his radio phone and thumbed the call button again. This time there was no delay. Yes? How are the radiation detectors behaving there, Grandfather? One moment I shall see. Then there was a silence. Then, no unusual activity, young Wang. Why? Wang told him, then asked, Did you get hold of the air authorities? Yes. They have no missing aircraft, but they're checking with the space fields. The way you describe it, the thing must be a spaceship of some kind. I think so, too. I wish I had a radiation detector here, though. I'd like to see whether that thing is hot or not. It's only a couple of miles or so away. I think I'd better stay away. Meanwhile, you'd better put in a call to Central Headquarters Fire Control. There's going to be a holocaust if I'm any judge, unless they get here fast with plenty of equipment. I'll see to it, said his grandfather, cutting off. The bluish glow in the sky had quite died away by now, and the distant rumbling was gone, too. And, oddly enough, there was not much smoke in the distance. There was a small cloud of gray that rose, streamer-like, from where the glow had been, but even that faded away fairly rapidly in the chill breeze. Quite obviously, there would be no fire. After several more minutes of watching, he was sure of it. There couldn't have been much heat produced in that explosion, if it could really be called an explosion. Then he saw something moving in the trees between himself and the spot where the ship had come down. He couldn't quite see what it was, but it looked like someone crawling. Hello there, he called out. Are you hurt? There was no answer. Perhaps whoever it was didn't understand Russian. Wang's command of English wasn't too good, but he called out in that language. Still, there was no answer. Whoever it was had crawled out of sight. Then he realized that it couldn't be anyone crawling. No one could have run the distance between here and the ship in the time since it had hit, much less crawled. He frowned. A wolf, then? Possibly. They weren't too common, but there were still plenty of them around. He unholstered the heavy pistol at his side and as he slid the barrel free, he became the first human being ever to see the Nipe.
for an instant, as the knife came out from behind a tree fifteen feet away, Wang Kulichenko froze as he saw those four baleful violet eyes glaring at him from the snouted head. He jerked up the pistol to fire. He was much too late. His reflexes were too slow by far. The knife launched itself across the intervening space in a blur of speed that would have made a leopard seem slow. The alien's hands slapped aside the gun with a violence that broke the man's wrist, while other hands slammed at his skull. Wang Kulichinko hardly had time to be surprised before he died. The knife stood quietly for a moment, looking down at the thing he had killed. His stomach churned with disgust. He ignored the fading hoofbeats of the slave animal from which he had knocked the thing that lay on the ground with a crushed skull. The slave animal was unintelligent and unimportant. This was the intelligent one. But so slow, so incredibly slow, and so weak and soft. It seemed impossible that such poorly equipped beasts could have survived long enough on any world to evolve to become the dominant life-form. Perhaps it was not the dominant form. Perhaps it was merely a higher slave animal. He would have to do more investigating. He picked up the weapon the thing had drawn and examined it carefully. The mechanism was unfamiliar, but a glance at the muzzle told him that it was a projectile weapon of some sort. The twisted grooves in the barrel were obviously designed to impart a spin to the projectile, to give it gyroscopic stability while in flight. The dead thing must have thought he was a wild animal, the knife decided. Surely no being would carry a weapon for use against members of its own or another intelligent species. He examined the rest of the equipment on the thing. Not much information there. Too bad the slave animal was gone. There had apparently been more equipment strapped to it. The next question was, what should he do with the body? Devour it properly as one should with a validly slain foe? It didn't seem that he could do anything else, and yet his stomachs wanted to rebel at the thought. After all, it wasn't as if the thing were really a proper being. It was astonishing to find another intelligent race. None had ever been found before. But he was determined to show them that he was civilized and intelligent too. On the other hand, they were obviously of a lower order than the knipe, and that made the question even more puzzling. In the end, he decided to leave the thing here for the others of its kind to find. They would doubtless consume it properly. And he glanced at the sky and listened. They would be here in time. There were aircraft coming. He would have to leave quickly. He had to find one of their production or supply centers, and he would have to do it alone, with only the equipment he had on him. The utter destruction of his ship had left him seriously hampered. He began moving, staying in the protection of the trees. His ethical sense still bothering him, it was not at all civilized to leave a body to the mercy of lesser animals or monocells like that. What kind of monster would they think he was? Still, there was no help for it. 
If they caught him while feeding, they might have thought him a lower animal and shot him. He couldn't put an onus like that upon them. He moved on. End of Part 1